Today's episode is on the topic of life in Christ. At some point in our lives, growing in our faith means choosing to believe based on the truth of the church's teachings. In this talk, I discuss relativism, which is an obstacle to that step, and I present three truths of the faith. God exists, Jesus is God, and Jesus founded the Catholic Church. I hope you enjoy it. If you'd like to hear these talks live, come to Catholicism 101 on Thursdays at 7 in the church. Next week is our last one for the semester, so hope to see you there. Thanks, God bless, and gigum. Uh, for those that are new, uh, we've been going through this semester a kind of curriculum that's been following the Magnify. So Magnify started, and Marcel spoke to us about the kerygma, the very first proclamation of the faith, that basic proclamation that Jesus Christ loves you, he gave his life to save you, and now he's living by your side every day to enlighten, strengthen, and free you. And we talked about uh, three, we had three lectures on the kerygma, on God's love, on sin and grace, and uh, ending out with the call to holiness. Then we went to the next uh, magnify, and the topic at the next magnify was life in Christ, and that was Dr. Edward Sree. And then we followed that with three lectures. We had the sacraments, we had prayer, and we had something else. Does anyone remember? Well, I'm losing my train of thought. Virtues, the moral life, that's right. So those were the three uh, lectures that we had. And then we just had another magnify about a, a week ago, a couple weeks ago. And uh, a sister spoke to us about life in the church. We only have two Catholicism 101s left, including tonight. Uh, so because uh, three weeks from now, we'll have a magnify, and then it will be Thanksgiving, and then it will be finals, and then it will be Christmas break, and then we'll start over in the new semester, right? So uh, two lectures on the church, two lectures on life in the church. Uh, today... Uh, I'm going to be speaking about why the church, and more specifically, I'm going to break um, why the church into these two lectures, tonight and next week. Tonight, we're going to be focusing on uh, the truth of the church, the truth that uh, what she teaches is trustworthy, is actually true universally, not just for some, but for everyone. And then next week, I'm going to respond to some common uh, objections, questions from Protestants regarding the Catholic faith. We're, we're living in Texas, so chances are most of the people uh, that aren't Catholic that you're running into on campus are Protestant. And we're going to be responding to some of the Protestant questions and objections next week. This week, we're just going to be talking about three basic truth claims of the church that God exists, that Jesus is God, and that Jesus founded the Catholic Church. But I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, all right? We'll get there, so hold your horses, all right? So we'll begin with this, this wonderful uh, citation, this wonderful quote from Pope Benedict. This was actually before he was the Pope, um, but it's a, it's a beautiful way for us to reflect upon uh, the truth of the church. So I'm going to go ahead and, and read it out loud. An adult faith is not a faith that follows the trends of fashion and the latest novelty. A mature adult faith is deeply rooted in friendship with Christ. 
It is this friendship that opens us up to all that is good and gives us a criterion by which to distinguish the true from the false and deceit from truth. We must develop this adult faith. We must guide the flock of Christ to this faith. And it is this faith, only faith, that creates unity and is fulfilled in love. There comes a time in our lives where growing in our faith, maturing in our faith, means choosing to believe, not just having fallen into it. We actually choose to believe because it's true. Let me give some examples of of ways that might still be immature faith. Um, Believing simply because we were raised Catholic. Uh, Someone just as easily could have been raised Protestant or Buddhist or atheist. So just believing what you were raised to believe is, is still an immature, not yet adult faith. There comes a time in our life when we grow in our faith by choosing it because it is true. Another perhaps uh, yet immature reason to believe is because we like the community, or we like the music, or we like the preaching at this particular church. As the truth is, you can find that anywhere. You can find anyone who's able to preach well. You can pay any band to play music that you like, and there's lots of communities all over the place, including in Austin, right? So, uh, I know, I know. So, we have to mature in our faith uh, to such a degree that we choose it, because it's true. We believe Catholicism because what she teaches is true. Placing truth, okay, placing whether or not what she teaches is true as the criterion for our belief actually allows for deep unity and real love. Placing our criterion for belief in anything else is going to leave us on a shallow level. Right? It's going to um, say, well, if we're not pursuing truth together, what are we going to pursue together? That we're going to feel good together? Again, you can feel good in Austin. Right? Uh, Is that where you want to be? That's a shallow level. It's a shallow level. We want to believe on a deep level. And that deep level is going to be truth. That's what it means to be human. That's what separates us from animals, right? Animals can feel good. I'm going to keep pointing to Austin, right? (laughs) Uh, I'm joking, but but really, but really. Uh, uh, So uh, what makes us distinct from animals, well, it's that we know. We know in love. And so our deepest unity is going to be brought about when we pursue truth together. That's what makes for real friendship and authentic love, that I want you to be well is not just that I want you to feel good, it's that I want you to be good. I want you to be well. And what that means as a human being is to know the truth. Uh, Let's let the truth be the criterion that establishes our belief. This will allow for deep unity and authentic love. So what would be an obstacle to this criterion of truth being uh, the the criterion of our belief? What would be an obstacle? I want to tell you it's not um, 
Protestantism. It's not even atheism. It's not Buddhism. Uh, So long as the adherents of those faiths or lack of faith are choosing that faith or lack of faith because they believe it to be true, we can have real, meaningful dialogue because we're both pursuing the truth together. And I've experienced that in very beautiful ways, especially in this semester, Uh, this pursuit of truth together that leads us, even if we're not on the same page yet regarding what we think is true, we are seeking truth together, and that allows for deep friendship. So no, the the obstacle to uh, this criterion of truth being what allows us to believe is not other faiths. Uh, It's actually... Uh, something called relativism. Relativism says that there is no truth. Uh, There's nothing that's true for everyone at all times. I hope you're seeing already that it's self-contradictory. Because is that true for everyone at all times? Relativism, and we'll get more into why it's impossible, but relativism is what keeps us from pursuing deep friendships, deep unity, and authentic love because it says there is no truth. What's true for you may not be true for me. You do you, man, all right? You leave me alone. Uh, You see how it's already starting to isolate us, individualize us. We're no longer pursuing the truth together. So uh, relativism is what's going to keep us on a shallow level. It's going to keep us on what we can agree on with, uh, without really having to get into the deep dialogue in the pursuit of truth, right? We can all agree that it's awesome to feel good, right? They can do that uh, in Austin. So we don't want to remain on that level, though. We want to remain on a deep level. So we're going to, it's, it's honestly, relativism is something that is, is so prevalent today that I want to address it directly, I'm going to address it at some length, and then I'm going to move to uh, the truths that the church does hold. Uh, We don't hold that there is no truth. We're going to move to that later. So uh, tonight we're going to be kind of moving through these these three uh, movements, these three uh, subjects, relativism, individualism, and the Catholic Church. Here we go. Uh, does anyone work out at uh, Planet Fitness? I see a hand back there. He was kind of, no? Okay, I used to go, I used to work out at Planet Fitness. Uh, Planet Fitness is, I think, the cheapest gym uh, that you can get. It's $10 a month, it's awesome. And uh, if you can see here, this is what they put everywhere so that everyone feels safe to come into Planet Fitness, even if you're not um, really fit, like myself. Uh, you, you can go there, work out, just lift with the fives, and no one's going to judge you. No one's going to condemn you. But when I look at that, I, I, I laugh because I, I think to myself, what if I started to judge someone, and then someone came up to me and said, hey, you can't judge. I would say two things back to them. You just made two judgments, one that I was judging and two that I shouldn't judge, right? It's impossible. The no judgment zone, we're human beings. We have to judge. That's red. I just made a judgment, right? If I'm squatting like this, it's going to hurt me. That's a judgment, right? There's no such thing as a no judgment zone. 
But what are they actually getting at, right? They don't want condemnation, and that's a good thing. We can get behind, let's not condemn people, right? Uh, that's a kind of judgment that, that we don't want to do. But, but I put it up there uh, because it's, it's another kind of just subtle expression of how much we're all swimming in the waters of relativism. So relativism, again, uh, in its most basic form, is that there is no truth. It's self-contradictory. It's impossible. When you say there is no truth, you're trying to tell me something true. Okay? So it's impossible. It's, it's not a system that you can actually work on. It, what it actually does is hide the philosophy that you really have. It hides a philosophy that you really have underneath this kind of facade of there is no truth. Here are some various expressions of relativism. What's true for you is not true for me. Was well, that always true or just now for you? Right? Uh, you need to speak your truth. Uh, what about, is, is that your truth or is that true for everyone? Um, who am I to judge? You shouldn't judge. Well, again, you just judged me, and now you're telling me not to judge, such as another judgment. Uh, don't impose your beliefs on others. Are you imposing that on me? <laughs> All right? Uh, my Bible in me. My Bible in me. Well, my Bible says this. Uh, well, my Bible says that. Actually, it's the same thing, Right? The Bible says the same thing. So if it's just my Bible and me, well, this is just my truth. Well, is that true for everyone? You know? Uh, for me, abortion is wrong. Right? For you, it couldn't be. You know? So how confusing this gets? Well, is that always true, or is that just true for you or for me? So how confusing this gets? Right? But ultimately, as we keep going, I'm spiritual, not religious. We're pretty religious about being spiritual. Uh, <laughs> I, hate, I love Jesus and hate religion. Why are you so intolerant? Uh, are you saying that I should be tolerant? You're intolerant of my intolerance? Right? So, so all of these things, right? they're self-contradictory, and I'm kind of joking about it because I, I want you to be on guard. Th this, is, this is the water that we swim in. Okay? Uh, I would imagine you've heard these at some time. Okay? So you are college students here at Texas A&M, and you are able to see underneath something that makes no sense. Right? This, this, none of this makes sense. It's, it's self-contradictory. So ultimately, you have to get underneath uh, what's being hidden. Because the truth is, right, um, who am I to judge, or why are you so intolerant, coexist? These things are hiding a philosophy that the person actually does believe, okay? Let's, let's give some examples, okay? I'm going to look at, at three of them more closely, okay? Coexist. Maybe you've seen that bumper sticker before. Again, we can get behind a lot of coexist in terms of nonviolence, in terms of mutual respect. Uh, we can get behind coexist. But what coexist seems to suggest is all of your truths are fine for you, um, but they have nothing to do with me whatsoever. So as long as your religion, you know, you keep it to yourself and it doesn't have anything to do with me, let's just coexist and pretend like whatever you believe has no bearing on anyone else, right? Um, so it's, it's hiding the fact that the person really wants there to be no conflict. 
that we should have kindness and, and respect. And all of those things are good, but it's, it's hiding those things under this uh, kind of banner of coexist. Now, do I want people always uh, to be respectful? Yes, I always want people to be respectful. Uh, but do I think that being respectful means avoiding conflict at all costs? No, I don't think so. I think that there are some things, if I come across someone and they believe, for example, um, that uh, a, a people from a certain country are by nature inferior to another country, then, then I think that we need to have a real conflict because I think that's false. Okay? We can't coexist in, in the sense of, of not having conflict in that instance. Right? So who am I to judge? What's, what's going on behind here is that uh, you shouldn't judge, which is, again, self-contradictory, okay? You shouldn't judge. Well, you're judging me, so where are we going to go from here? Um, what this is hiding is, is some moral philosophy that the person actually believes. So you can hear someone say this, who am I to judge? We shouldn't judge. We should be tolerant. Don't impose your beliefs on me. All these kinds of things. That's all fine and well until we get to something that the person actually does believe that's universal. For example, that no one should be racist. I agree. No one should be racist. Uh, now we are no longer talking about who am I to judge because if this person really believed it to the logical conclusion, then the person who is racist, uh, when talking with this person, they wouldn't actually be able to have a real dialogue. They say, well, who am I to judge? Right? And, and no one actually thinks that. No one actually thinks that. So who am I to judge is hiding what they actually think. Right? And so you can get beneath that facade and start to have a dialogue of what they actually think and what they hold to be true. I agree that we shouldn't be racist. Now, why do you think that? And is that consistent with the other things that you happen to believe? For example, um, do you happen to believe in same-sex marriage? Um, how are those things compatible or incompatible? Right? Now we're having a real dialogue about what is true. Uh, and that's going to allow us to be friends on a deeper level. And we're not going to stay on this level of good feelings. My Bible and me, right? Um, my Bible and me, so I can read the Bible and have my own personal interpretation of it, and another person can read their Bible and have their own personal interpretation of it, and if those are contradictory, right? Well, if I just say, well, this is just, you know, my interpretation, it's true for me, and it's not true for you, then we're not really dialoguing. We're not seeking the truth, and this is not something that can actually sustain real love and deep unity. Right? Should we baptize infants? Uh, well, my Bible says we should. Well, my Bible says we shouldn't. I think this is pretty important. I think we need to get to what's actually true. Well, it could be true for you. It's not going to be true for me. No, is it actually true? This is a matter of life and death, of heaven and hell. This is really important stuff. So, Get underneath these things, right? Get underneath them to what they actually think. Don't stay on this level, right? 
that last one is the clearest way that we can see how these philosophies lead to isolation and individualism. You do you, do you right? Love that on you, right? Um, all these ways of kind of just saying, whatever you believe doesn't matter. You stay over there. As long as it doesn't impact me in a way that actually hurts, that's fine, right? Now we're isolated. Now we're individualistic. We're not going to have deep union, authentic love, and real friendship, right? So uh, I think that we all see this in areas that are very important and even not important, that, that we don't want to be individualists. When it comes to starting a family, moms and dads constantly do research, constantly ask other moms and dads about the best way to be moms and dads. They want the absolute best for their children. Uh, that actually requires that everyone want to know what is good for children. Right? Well, it might be good for you, it's not good for me. That No one does that when it comes to their children, right? They actually want to know what's good for their children. When it comes to a career, an engineer is not going to say, well, it's my truth that the building is going to stand. Right? Well, is it going to stand or not? Right? We need to know. Okay? No, no one has, well, it's just my truth. It's my individual truth the building is going to stand. Uh, no, actually, I'm going to need to know if it's going to stand. Right? Uh, sports. Uh, was he out of bounds? Well, he was for me. No, what was he out of bounds, right? We, we, we operate on a level of truth, okay? We really do. We don't operate on a level of your truth and my truth. Um, if we do that in things that are important, like family and career, even things that are unimportant, like uh, recreation, why would we not do it when it comes to the thing that is the most important, the meaning of life? What is going to lead us to heaven? What is going to give us authentic happiness and real fulfillment? Right? So is relativism is unworkable. It's self-contradictory. We don't operate in that way in any other area of our life. So why would we do so when it comes to the faith? Why would we do so when it comes to morals? So let's see. When it comes to faith, when it comes to morals, this most important part of our life, we, we ultimately have to ask the same question that we ask in these other areas. Ultimately, what is true? What is true? This is from John chapter 18. Uh, Pilate and Jesus right, having their dialogue before he's condemned. John chapter 18. Jesus says, everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. Pilate responds, what is truth? What is truth? Now, we can answer this question unwittingly, just by going along with the flow, just by swimming in the water that everyone is swimming in. What's true for you is not true for me. Uh, actually, deeper on a level, we do have a morality that we are agreeing on. And if we agree on that morality unwittingly, uh, we may be caught up in a stream that's not leading to authentic life. We need to answer this question intentionally. What is truth? Right? So Pilate, he dismissed this question altogether. What is truth? And then he did something awful. 
Then he murdered an innocent man in order to placate a crowd. Our ideas have real effects. Our ideas have real effects. What is truth? What is true? And I want to tell you in this presentation that the church, the church is true. What the Catholic Church believes is true. Not just for you, not just for me, it's true. These are the three things that I want to say tonight. God exists. Jesus is God. Jesus founded the Catholic Church. I'm not presenting these things as what I uh, you know, think is true for me. Presenting these things as uh, what I believe is true. What is true. Right? And this beautiful picture here, Jesus and Peter in the boat with the catch of fish. God exists. Jesus is God. Jesus founded the Catholic Church. So, uh, I know John 15 has to leave in um, 18 minutes. So, don't worry, John 15. I'm going to try to get through as much as we can. All right. So, God exists. The first uh, one that we're going to touch, is, this is an argument from reason, not an argument from faith. I'm not trying to uh, use something that isn't available to someone who doesn't believe in the Catholic faith. I'm using reason uh, alone. And this argument from St. Thomas Aquinas is absolutely classic. Uh, it's something worth knowing. He believed that there were five ways to prove God's existence. And he said that this first one is the clearest way, and it's the way from movement or change. Let me say, um, if you happen to be talking to folks on campus about the existence of God, and they want you to prove it scientifically, uh, that's not going to happen. Um, and if it could happen, uh, that would be a pretty wimpy God. If you could actually measure God, contain him in a box, and prove that he exists, that would be not a God worth worshiping. Okay? God, the one that we are talking about, is the ground of all being. He's transcendent. You're not going to be able to see him. You're not going to be able to measure him. Right? If you could, it would be a God not worth worshiping. And that's not a cop-out answer, okay? Uh, the idea that you have to know something by the scientific method is a claim, but it's also a claim that you can't know by the scientific method. You see how all of these things are kind of self-contradictory? Everything that's worth knowing you can only know by the scientific method. Well, can you know that by the scientific method? Right? Actually, that was a philosophical claim and a pretty bad one because it's self-contradictory, okay? So uh, you don't have to know everything by the scientific method. And this is, we're going to be making a philosophical argument for God's existence. St. Thomas Aquinas, 13th century Italian priest. Uh, this is in his masterpiece called the Summa Theologiae, first part, the second question, and the third article. This is a, a summary of it. That's not how he writes, okay? It's pretty long. <laughs> It's pretty long, uh, and it's worth your time. Um, some folks that can give some great commentaries on it are Edward Fazer and also Matt Frad. There's some, some folks. This, this argument has caught a lot more popularity in the wake of the new atheist movement. Uh, so you can check those resources out as well. But ultimately, this is how the argument goes. Things move. Nothing moves itself. So... If it's moving, it's because something moved it. 
there can be no infinite regress of moved movers. There must be some first unmoved mover. That is what people call God. So let's talk about this presentation up here. When he says move, he's not even just talking about locomotion. He's talking about that it's in act. Like, I'm potentially sitting down, I'm actually standing up. And this presentation is actually on the wall. Right? That's, that's what he means by, like, it's moving. It's, it's actualized on the wall here. Now, why is it there? Well, this projector is here. Well, why is that there? Because my brother put it there. Well, why did he put it there? Because I told him to. Well, why did I tell him to? Uh, because I have a mind and an intellect, or and, and, and a will. Well, how did I get a mind and a will? Well, my mom and dad love each other, and um, <laughs> right. Uh, well, why do they love each other? Right. Okay. So we're we're going back. We're going back. Their mom and dad. Their mom and dad. Their mom. Like okay. All of these things are moved movers. Uh, they all got put into act by something else. You all know English, right? right? Um, you, that didn't happen out of nowhere. Someone taught you English. Even if you learned it from a book, the book taught you English, right? Because someone wrote it and you put yourself through that, but they wrote it. Um, you're in the actuality of knowing English. Um, you were in the potentiality of it. Someone had to put you there. Um, all, of, all of matter is in some kind of um, actual form. It didn't have to be in that form, but it is. But who put it there? If we appeal to something else that is also moved, then that one has to be moved in the same way. And this can't go back forever because if you go back and back and back and back and back and back, it would never, ever stop. Um, and there would constantly never, ever be an explanation for the first one if it is itself a moved mover. So there must be an unmoved mover. And this is what people call God. Now, we're not talking here about uh, the Christian God. We're not talking... Uh, without any kind of, you know, characteristics, we're just talking about the ground of being, the ground of motion, the ground of being in act. He is actus purus, pure act. He's not in potentiality at all and never was. He's pure act. He brings things into act. So, again, uh, we're not going to be able to get too much more into it, but if you're interested in this, he said, St. Thomas Aquinas, five ways. Some two popular commentators on it would be Edward Fazer and Matt Frad. So, second claim, Jesus is God. So we've got God exists, now Jesus is God. This is a citation from C.S. Lewis, uh, one of the kind of biggest... Uh, steps in apologetics and in defending the faith happened uh, in the 20th century with C.S. Lewis with this famous uh, trilemma argument, all right? Jesus is a liar, a lunatic, or he is Lord. You have to choose one. This is, this is what he says. Um, he's quoting someone. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. 
You heard that before? That's kind of like the coexist thing. Right? Yeah, Jesus is good. He's a great teacher, and he, he helps us know what we should do in terms of being good moral people, but, but that's it. C.S. Lewis says, no, that can't be it. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Liar, lunatic, or Lord, because of some of the things that he said. What are some of the things that he said? Amen, amen, I say to you, before Abraham came to be, I am. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's not saying no one comes to the Father except through my teachings. My teachings are the way and the truth and the life. No, I am the way and the truth and the life. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He's calling himself the greatest good, greater even than family. Child, your sins are forgiven, he says to the paralytic. Now some of them were sitting there asking themselves, why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who but God alone can forgive sins? Finally, in Luke, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. It's not just in the Gospel of John. Jesus is claiming to be God, to be worshipped. A good moral teacher does not do that if he's not God. Right? He would be causing all of us to commit uh, a terrible sin, to give worship to something that's merely a man. Right? So we have to ask ourselves that trilemma. He's either a liar or a lunatic or he is Lord. Now, um, how can we evaluate? If someone were to say these things to us today, what would be some ways that you would want to check him to see if he's actually telling the truth? You say that you're God. Um, how can you prove it? Right? Well, um, you would want to look for two things in particular. You would want to look for miracles. Uh, you would want to look for things that he could do that man couldn't do, that could only be ex ex uh, explainable by the fact that he's God. And you'd want to look to prophecy, that he had been foretold. This uh, quote from the First Vatican Council. In order that the submission of our faith should be in accordance with reason, it was God's will that there should be linked to the internal assistance of the Holy Spirit external indications of his revelation, that is to say, divine acts, and first and foremost, miracles and prophecies, which clearly demonstrating, as they do, the omnipotence and infinite knowledge of God are the most certain signs of revelation and are suited to the understanding of all. So I'm not saying that if you just look at the miracles and the prophecies, you're going to have faith. 
Faith is more than that. Faith is a gift. It's a grace. Um, But it's not a blind leap. We can, with reason, see that it is something worth believing because it's consistent with what our reason would expect. And our reason would expect, if someone claims to be God, that he can do things that simply man cannot do, that he would be announced well ahead of time by prophets. So let's look at the prophecies. I'm not going to go through all of these, but um, I'm going to go through these ones quickly and the next ones a little bit more slowly. This is everything that's prophesied, not everything even, some things that are prophesied about the Lord. Uh, From what lineage will he come? That of David. You can see it in these scripture passages. How? A virgin birth. When? Can you imagine? When? When will he come? Around 33 AD, 490 years after Artaxerxes' decree to rebuild the temple. What will he be like? One like Moses. What will he do? He'll work miracles. Why will he come to save us from our sins? All of this was prophesied beforehand, and he fulfilled it. Where is it going to happen? Bethlehem. We'll read this one from Micah chapter 5. Again, this is about 750 years before the Lord came. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, least among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from of old, from ancient times. In what way is he going to come? This is from Zechariah, again, about 500 years before the Lord came. Exult greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout for joy, O daughter Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. A just savior is he, humble, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. We see it fulfilled here in Matthew 21. They brought the ass and the colt and laid their cloaks over them, and he sat upon them. The very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and strewed them on the ground. The crowds preceding him and those following kept crying out and saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And then this is perhaps the most uh, famous uh, prophecies. I'm I'm starting to run out of time. So let me uh, go to the end of it for, for, for now so I can get to John 15, let them leave. Um, but it was the Lord's will to crush him with pain. By making his life as a reparation offering, he shall see his offspring, shall lengthen his days, and the Lord's will shall be accomplished through him. Because of his anguish, he shall see the light. Because of his knowledge, he shall be content. My servant, the just one, shall justify the many. Their iniquity he shall bear. Therefore I will give him his portion among the many. He shall divide the spoils with the mighty because he surrendered himself to death, was counted among the transgressors, bore the sins of many, and interceded for the transgressors. Isaiah 53. So you have the Lord fulfilling prophecies. We would expect this if someone claimed to be God, and here it is. What about miracles? There's lots of miracles that Jesus worked in his life, but the greatest one is the resurrection. Uh, St. Paul speaks about this in 1 Corinthians And if Christ had not been raised, then empty is our preaching, empty too your faith. Then we are also false witnesses to God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, neither has Christ been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is in vain, you are still in your sins. 
So this is essential. Uh, We have to look at the resurrection. If it didn't happen, we shouldn't be following Jesus. If the resurrection did not happen, we should not be Catholic. Okay? We shouldn't be Christian. So, the resurrection is a historical fact. It's, well, technically, it is, um, these are four historical facts. And um, you can uh, give an interpretation to these four historical facts. And the most likely interpretation to these historical facts are, in fact, that Jesus rose from the dead. And that Jesus was buried, that his tomb was discovered empty, that he appeared to lots of people after he died, and that the disciples began to believe in the resurrection. These are four attested to historical facts. Now, why would all of these things happen? Um, You could say that perhaps there was um, hallucinations, perhaps there was a conspiracy, uh, but those things don't really fit the evidence. The thing that fits the evidence in the best way possible is in fact that Jesus rose from the dead. Let's talk about a couple of reasons why. The the empty tomb was discovered uh, by women. Um, Now at that time, if you wanted to make up a myth about a resurrection, you wouldn't have said that it was discovered by women because they would have been not very trustworthy. So they, but in all of the, and obviously I'm not believing that now, as you know that, uh, in all of the gospel accounts, the first ones to see the empty tomb and tell the apostles are women. Why would they uh, say that unless it were actually true? If they were trying to convince people of something that wasn't true, they wouldn't have used women. All right. Um, Now, the disciples, all of a sudden, begin believing in the resurrection. If you were living three years of your life following this one man, and he died on the cross in a horrific way, um, would you make it up that he rose from the dead and then keep living for him and keep suffering for him and even die for him? No, you wouldn't. And yet, they did, and they spread the faith, and people continued living for him and dying for him. So, the best way to understand these four historical facts is, in fact, that Jesus rose from the dead. All right, last claim. Jesus founded the Catholic Church, okay? So, this... uh, Right here, Matthew 16, 18. All I'm saying with this, uh, again, I'm, I'm trying to make all of these arguments not from Catholic faith. Okay? I'm trying to show the reasonability of Catholic faith. I'm trying to show from reason uh, these things to be true. Okay? So uh, I'm not trying to cheat in, in some sense. When it comes to the fact that that Jesus is God, we would expect there to be this kind of evidence, namely that there would be prophecies and that there would be miracles. So in addition to all of the miracles that Jesus actually worked in his life, we have the greatest one with the resurrection. That brings us to have to really ask that question. Uh, Is Jesus liar, lunatic, or Lord? It seems to be that he's Lord. Jesus is God. right? 
Now, that puts us in the realm of Christianity. Lots of expressions of Christianity. I'm suggesting, I'm saying, that Jesus founded the Catholic Church. What would be ways for you to evaluate that claim? Um, if we look here in Matthew 16, 18, right? He, he wanted to found a church. And so I say to you, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of the netherworld shall not prevail against it. Matthew 16, 18. I think that it would be reasonable to expect the church that Christ founded, if this is the case, that the gates of the netherworld shall not prevail against it, that it would be believing the same things from the beginning unto now. Right? If you want to be in the church that Christ founded, it would make sense to be in the church that believes the same things that they have believed from the beginning, if the gates of the netherworld are not going to overcome it. Um, so a really great resource for us to look into this is the witness of the early church, the church fathers. We see um, their writings as witnesses to what the church believed. What did these early Christians believe? Uh, again, on a natural level, wouldn't it make sense the closer you are actually to Jesus and the apostles, the purer reception of the faith that he wanted to pass down you would find? Even without the Holy Spirit at work, right? Even without the Holy Spirit at work, um, just on a natural level, wouldn't it make sense that there would be a purer form of a message, of an institution, of a body, um, earlier than later? I think we can make that uh, claim from reason. And so it would make sense that if the gates of the netherworld are never going to overcome this church, then the church that we want to be in, if we want to be in the church that Christ founded, we want to be in a church that believes the same things that the early church did. And so there are three things that I'm going to look at. There, there are many others, and there are other ways to look at Jesus founding the Catholic Church. But this is what I'm limiting myself to, and even within the Church Fathers, I'm limiting myself to three things. I'm limiting myself to the Eucharist, the priesthood, and Mary and the saints. All right. Those are three things that we believe as Catholics, that the Eucharist is truly the body and blood of Jesus, that priests, bishops, deacons, and the Pope are the way that uh, the Catholic Church is governed. Uh, and we pray to the saints and to Mary, and we ask them to intercede for us, and we honor them. Right? I, I'm fairly certain that no other expression of Christianity has those things. Um, so if we were to find those things in the early church, it would give a lot of credence to the fact that we're in the church that Christ founded. So let's continue. All right, so first, the Eucharist. All right, um, Ignatius of Antioch, he's writing 110 AD. All right. To give you some context, uh, the, the last document of the New Testament, scholars kind of estimate being around 90, 95. Um, so this is really, really early. This is right after the apostles, okay? 
What does Ignatius have to say about the Eucharist? Take note of those who hold heterodox opinions on the grace of Jesus Christ which has come to us and see how contrary their opinions are to the mind of God. Already here we have a disagreement, and he's saying what is actually true. They abstain from the Eucharist and from prayer because they do not confess that the Eucharist is the flesh of our Savior Jesus Christ, flesh which suffered for our sins and which that Father in his goodness raised up again. They who deny the gift of God are perishing in their disputes. Faith in the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist, that it is his body and blood. Justin Martyr, all right, 151 A.D. For not as common bread nor common drink do we receive these, but since Jesus Christ our Savior was made incarnate by the word of God and had both flesh and blood for our salvation, so too, as we have been taught, the food which has been made into the Eucharist by the Eucharistic prayer set down by him and by the change of which our blood and flesh is nurtured is both the flesh and the blood of that incarnated Jesus. Really, really early testimony of the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist. Sometimes you'll hear the argument that the church went crazy in the medieval period and started believing all sorts of wacky things. Uh, That's not the case when it comes to the Eucharist. This is really, really early testimony of Eucharistic faith. Let's move to the governance of the church. I have three citations here, all right? Uh, Popes, bishops, priests, and deacons. Again, Ignatius of Antioch, he's like an all-star. Take care to do all things in harmony with God, with the bishop presiding in the place of God, and with the presbyters, or if you were to shorten that, priests. It's the same, same thing there, and with the presbyters in the place of the council of the apostles and with the deacons, who are most dear to me, entrusted with the business of Jesus Christ, who was with the Father from the beginning and is at last made manifest. 110 AD, very clear delineation of bishops, priests, and deacons. Clement of Alexandria, 208 AD. Just to give you another context, the first time that there was a list of the canon of Scripture was late 4th century, 370, 380, right? That's that's the first time we have a list of which books go in the Bible. So these things are being said before that list is there, much before that list is here. Clement of Alexandria. Even here in the church, the gradations of bishops, presbyters, and deacons happen to be imitations, in my opinion, of the angelic glory and of that arrangement which the scriptures say awaits those who have followed in the footsteps of the apostles and who have lived in complete righteousness according to the gospel. So you have the governance of the church. Um, So this is for the pope in particular, okay, the successor of Peter who has that office given to him by Christ. Cyprian of Carthage, here we are still, oops, still early, 251. The Lord says to Peter, I say to you, he says that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, 
On him, Peter, he builds the church, and to him he gives the command to feed the sheep. And although he assigns a like power to all the apostles, yet he founded a single chair, Catherja, and he established by his own authority a source and an intrinsic reason for that unity. Indeed, the others were the Indeed, the others were that also which Peter was, that is, apostles. But a primacy is given to Peter, whereby it is made clear that there is but one church and one chair. So too, all the apostles are shepherds, and the flock is shown to be one, fed by all the apostles in single-minded accord. If someone does not hold fast to this unity of Peter, can he imagine that he still holds the faith? If he should desert the chair of Peter upon whom the church was built, can he still be confident that he is in the church? All right, pretty cool. Let's move to Mary and the saints. All right, so again, our, our context here, the first list of, uh, the, of all the books that would go into the New Testament that, that we have, uh, 370, 380, okay? So we're still before that, which you all think that was a pretty good idea, right? Knowing which ones would go in the Bible. All right, okay, just making sure. Methodius, hail to you forever, virgin mother of God, our unceasing joy, for to you do I turn again. Hail, you treasure of the love of God. Hail, you fount of the Son's love for man. Therefore, we pray you, ask you, the most excellent among women, who glories in the confidence of your maternal honors, that you would unceasingly keep us in remembrance. A holy mother of God, remember us, I say, who make our boast in you, and who in august hymns celebrate the memory which will ever live and never fade away. Asking Mary to pray for us, honoring her. Then Ephraim the Syrian. 370 A.D., around the time of the canon of Scripture. You victorious martyrs who endured torments gladly for the sake of the God and Savior, you who have boldness of speech toward the Lord himself, you saints, intercede for us who are timid and sinful men, full of sloth, that the grace of Christ may come upon us and enlighten the hearts of all of us so that we may love him. So, very, very early witnesses to three beliefs that the Catholic Church still holds. The true presence of Christ in the Eucharist, the governance of the church by priests, bishops, deacons, the primacy of Peter, and honoring the Blessed Mother and praying to the saints by asking for their intercession. And so going to bring it back to this quote of uh, Pope Benedict. An adult faith is not a faith that follows the trends of fashion in the latest novelty. A mature adult faith is deeply rooted in friendship with Christ. It is this friendship that opens us up to all that is good and gives us a criterion by which to distinguish the true from the false and deceit from truth. We must develop this adult faith. We must guide the flock of Christ to this faith. And it is this faith, only faith, that creates unity and is fulfilled in love. 
comes a time in our lives when growing in our faith, maturing in our faith, means choosing to believe because it's true. Not because we were raised in it, not because it's convenient, not because we like the community, the preaching, or the music, but because it's true. Um, and these three claims that I've given, God exists, that Jesus is God, and that Jesus founded the Catholic Church, I think are reasons to be here. Uh, it's, it's not comprehensive of all of the reasons that one would choose to believe in Catholicism, but I think that they are pretty good ones and a good foundation for you to continue in your maturation of faith and your growth in faith. Um, so that's my prayer for you. Uh, I, I, I want to pursue truth with you together, and I, I want to make sure that if there's any way that I can help that I make myself available to you. Uh, let's go ahead and close in prayer, and those who would like can stay afterwards, and we uh, will have time for questions. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Gracious God, thank you for your goodness and love. Lord, you have chosen out of complete freedom to bring us into being because you want us to be with you forever. You want to share your very life with us, and you do so through your church. Lord, grant us the faith of the saints. Grant us that conviction that allows us to joyfully witness to the goodness of your love, that all might know the peace and the joy and the life that you want for each one of us, each one of your children. Blessed Mother, Mother of the Church, intercede for us as we pray together. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen.